Please join me. I'm going to read God's Word. I invite you to follow. It's always good to have your Bible open and follow along. I think you get more from what's being said if you do that or use the Pew Bible. We're reading from Matthew 24, continuing to study this final longer sermon of Jesus we call the Olivet Discourse or the Discourse on the Mount of Olives, which is all about the theme of His return to history. We've been looking at it now for a few weeks I'm going to read beginning at verse 36, and while I'm really going to stop my comments at verse 44, I think I'll, I'll finish reading the chapter. So follow along and hear God's Word. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's own word spoken by his son, Jesus Christ. The month of September in 1994 is a month I remember pretty well because it was a month of transition for me from serving at a church in Maryland to an impending move to come here to Westminster Church in Lancaster. Over the summer, your committee had interviewed me and your search committee and recommended me to the congregation, and you kindly voted and said I was to be the next pastor. So in September, there I was packing up the books, that's the most important thing, and uh, getting ready to come to Pennsylvania, ready to make that move in early October. However, there was a person around at that time who, if we had had a conversation, would have told me not to plan this move. In fact, he would have told me that I would not be continuing alive in the ministry in October, 
and there would be no Westminster congregation or building for me to come to in the month of October. If that puzzles you, the man was radio preacher Harold Camping. He was once heard on many Christian broadcasting stations with a popular program of Bible exposition. Harold Camping was really a good Bible teacher. My dad appreciated him. I would listen to him and think, this man's all right. He's pretty square as far as the way he deals with Scripture. But then in the early 90s, he came along and a book came out simply entitled 1994. And it was a book that sold thousands of copies and caused a great stir among churches in many places. For some reason, Mr. Camping took a rather odd turn, and he began to combine texts of Scripture in what were a really weird mathematical construct. I was given the book by a woman who was quite sure he was right. I read it out of curiosity. I wasn't going to comment on it to her, but she did come to me and insisted on knowing what I thought, and I had to tell her that it was the strangest, flimsiest kind of construct for calculating the return of Christ that I'd ever seen. But Mr. Camping told the public that Christ absolutely, he didn't have a doubt about it, was going to return in September or October of 1994. He didn't say he had the day, but he said, I've got it within a six-week period. Well, you know, of course, that Mr. Camping was wrong. And the amazing thing was that there were people at that time who so trusted this man. I heard about people who quit jobs, sold homes, moved back to where their loved ones were. This split congregations in some cases, all for a prediction that was wrong. Had he been correct, of course, our lives, not just mine, but all of our lives would have been greatly changed, greatly disrupted. I trust, as you know Christ, in a good way. Well, we can talk about people who predict the second coming and miss it, and we tend to shrug at those people and say, well, what's wrong with them anyway? But the problem would be if in dismissing them or their predictions, we brush off the event they are talking about the promised, factual, historic event of the return of Jesus Christ to history. Harold Camping was wrong about his date. Harold Camping was wrong in the whole way he saw the coming of Christ, but let me tell you, Jesus Christ is not wrong in what he tells us about this great event. We've been studying what's called his Olivet Discourse here in Matthew 24 now for the fourth time on this chapter. We're going to move forward, but you'll see that chapter 25 are really just parables that spin out the truths of chapter 24. We've heard him predict for us general signs that we can believe will occur throughout history, bringing sorrow and warfare and natural disaster and persecution and many such things. We looked further at his specific predictions about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he sure got that right. And last time, we went into a little bit about this wonderful promise, he states, about himself, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds with great glory. 
Now we'll see that from verse 36 onward, you could almost make a chapter break at verse 36 and, and say that if, if the people, and this isn't inspired by God, it was added much later on, if the people who divided up chapters and verses had started chapter 25 at 2436, it would have been pretty consistent with the turn of the subject because now he's beginning to apply that and say, all right, I've told you the events. What does it mean and how do we live in the consequence of it? He gets into practical exhortation now. And I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, a related passage, where the Apostle Paul writes to say, since we are people of the day, let us be self-controlled. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are people of the day, a great day that is coming that sheds light on every day leading up to it. People of the day who know Christ and expect Christ and long for Christ are those who have sufficient and yet not excessive information enough to give them a high sense of biblical expectation. Now, there are scriptures that stress the absolute immediacy of Jesus' return. Pastor Light read the the word of assurance this morning from James, which ended with the words, the judge is at the door. That's a stress on immediacy. But there are other passages, and we're going to see them Well, actually, even what I went on to read near the end of this chapter, the little mini parable there about the master who was away a long time. And Jesus, at least in a sort of backhanded way, implies that it could be a long time that he would be away. And, And the Scripture goes both ways when it talks about Christ's coming, sometimes saying, it's very near, you better be aware of that, other times implying you could have to wait a long time. And you, some people would say, well, that sounds like a contradiction. Why, why does it say both of those things? Well, I think it says both of those things to leave us in a, a kind of deliberate state of what I call biblical tension. And we call that tension hope. Hope of something that's going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to happen. Hope of something sure that has not yet been seen. We are sure of the fact that Christ our Savior possesses us now as we have been led to trust in Him and put our faith in Him. But yet, even though we know Him and we are new creations in Christ, we're not a completed new creation. We we don't have resurrection bodies. We haven't seen Him face to face. And we live in that sort of in-between time where we yearn forward for something, but we haven't seen it yet. Now, this tension tends to generate fretfulness and even paranoia in some people. But the Scripture says it shouldn't. We can wait for that last great event of Christ's coming with confidence and with giving ourselves constructively and patiently and energetically to every task Christ calls us to do, whether they're ordinary tasks or gospel ministry or witness or service We're to live as people of the day, the great day that sheds its light on every ordinary day. Well, first of all, Matthew 24, 36 has to be looked at because it 
state something that many people hear and then they just write it off. I don't know what they do. They, they must take a pen in their Bible and cross it out, I guess. I underline a lot of things in my Bible. and If you saw my Bible, it's got underlinings and little marginal things all over the place, symbols that mean certain things to me. And this verse is underlined. Well, I think some people don't underline it. They cross it out. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, not the sun. People read that and say, oh, okay, but now let's get back to calculating when he will come. Well, wait a minute. He said nobody knows. So how dare you get back to calculating? The first point I want to make to you today is this statement tells us it is impossible to pinpoint the day of Christ's return. Now, it's not an utterly unknown date because the Father knows it. You could look back to the passage, a very symbolic prophetic book called Zechariah, an Old Testament minor prophet. Zechariah 14.7 says the final day of the Lord is a day known to the Lord. The Lord knows it. He planned it from eternity. Why would he not plan it when it's the, the epitome of accomplishment of everything he has designed to do in all eternity by calling people to be his own? Here's going to be the great celebration day. Now, we, we spent nine years going from planning what should we do as a congregation to have more space and nine years of hard decisions and buying land and working with architects and, and we, we looked forward to and thought it would barely ever come that we'd have a dedication day, but it did come in 2006. Well, that's minor compared to this great day that is going to be the capstone of everything God ever planned to do. Sometimes in the New Testament, as I've already alluded to, it is simply referred to as the day with a capital D. You know, the, the authors, Paul writes about it that way in, uh, one or two times, and, and he doesn't even have to say what happens on the day. Everybody just knows the day, the end day, the last day, the greatest day, the day when all God's plans come to total fruition. And every believer in Jesus Christ is fulfilled in every possible way. You know, you can think of many ways in your life in which time seems to crawl. It doesn't once you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s, does it? It seems to run like a galloping horse. But when you're young, when you're very young, you know, I remember being in in grade school and way in the back of my brain somewhere there was the idea that I would graduate from high school. But it was way, way in the back of my brain. You know, I, I had an older sister, almost six years older, and other relatives and people who would graduate. And I would, you know, even go to my sister's graduation. And, but it, it just didn't ring true that this was going to be me someday graduating. It took, it, I think it really took me to the fall of my senior year before I thought, I'm going to graduate, God willing, you know, and actually experience this. Because time had just been crawling along for that event to be reached up until then. Well, we think of how we react in our limited knowledge toward this great day. And we read here that that's the way God wants it to be. He says, the angels in heaven serve our God. They're his messengers. They know anything that God tells them to know. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. They're created beings. But if God t- reveals something, they know it. 
but they don't know this date. And the most amazing thing about verse 36 that startles some people is that Jesus said, he, the Son, the one who's coming, at least in his human incarnation anyway, did not know the day. Some people find that fantastic. They say, how could that be? He was God. Doesn't he know everything? Well, he was indeed God in flesh. But there's a mystery about this incarnation of Christ as God in flesh. There, There seems to be very clearly things that he gave up to be a man. He didn't cease being God. Philippians 2 gets the closest we have of an explanation of it when it says he didn't consider equality with God something that he had to grasp in its fullness, but he was willing to be made as nothing. It's a little hard to make a list of all that he gave up, but one of the things it seems as a human being he gave up was omniscience. Jesus needed to pray. He didn't just pray because it set a nice example for us. He needed to, and of course he wanted to. And by prayer, he grasped and wrestled with what was ahead and what he saw himself doing and the, the cross as it was emerging very clearly for him. And say, but he still had to say, Father, is, is this it? Am I on the right track? Is there something else I haven't thought of? Father, if it be possible that I've thought of it wrong, show me. This was Jesus, the divine Son who had to pray that way in his humanity, and so he can say, and it shouldn't startle us or, or, or make us think less of him, that he says, I don't have the day. I'm not going to leave a calendar with you with this day written on it. This is reiterated in other ways. In Acts 1-7, at the ascension of Jesus Christ, the opening of the book of Acts, an angel messenger tells the apostles who were there witnessing it, it is not for you to know the time or dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Well, if the original apostles weren't going to be given that knowledge, why in the world is there always no shortage of people in human history who keep insisting that I can figure it out? That I can study the prophets and, and give you a complex chart and, and put every detail in place and draw an equivalent line between every mysterious symbol and something in current events, and I will figure it out. Every historic example we have of somebody venturing a new calculation of when Christ will return has proven foolishly wrong. You know, it's almost the automatic way, if, you, if you're in the ministry and you want to totally discredit yourself for forever after, just predict the date of Jesus' return. What do you do with the egg that's on your face when you're wrong? You, you can't wipe it off. And people say, I don't know why that man acted so foolishly to do that. Based on our text, Jesus Christ will come on a day when no one has predicted it. It will not be a day or a time when there's a fever, you know, of, of, oh, I think this is it. And many, many people are saying, yes, I agree. It's pretty near right now. It's got to be this. I honestly think it will be a time in history when even the most zealous prophecy scholars have gone into neutral and have not predicted And as a matter of fact, we need to understand from verse 36 here that attempting to calculate a date based on limited human knowledge is not only misguided, 
But because it flies in the face of something Jesus said we cannot know, it has to be labeled as arrogantly full of pride and a sinful act. You won't know. So don't try. You can rest in the blissful ignorance that our Father's wisdom and goodness is ordering history and planning these things. He's given you the ironclad security that you do belong to Him if you have come to Him by faith and His grace has given you a new heart in Christ. But you will not have, never before the fact will you have any total certainty about the date's arrival. I like the balance that some people have shown in this. Martin Luther was a good example. He looked at the tumultuous events surrounding the Protestant Reformation, the, you know, literally the teetering of great kingdoms and the change that came to the Roman church and the uprising of peasants and many things that was going, were going on as a result of the Reformation in the 1530s. And Luther did sort of write in some of his private writings to friends. He said, This looks like the last days of earth. This looks like the time when Jesus will come. But he never really stepped out and said it must be that way. And in fact, he kept his balance. And late in his life, someone came to him and said, Pastor Luther, what if you knew with certainty? What would you do if you knew with certainty that Christ our Lord was returning to history tomorrow? I love what Luther said. He said, if on tomorrow's agenda my previous plan was to plant a tree, I would plant the tree, and then I would look up and rejoice at the coming of my Lord. You see what Luther was saying? I mean, you you might say, how ridiculous. Why plant a tree? You know, trees take a long time to grow. No, Luther said, I would be found doing the tasks that God called me to do. I would be found faithful right to the end. And then I would look up and rejoice in my beloved Lord coming. That's what God expects of us, not pinpointing the date of Christ's return. Well, we move on, secondly, to look at the larger chunk of text here, verses 37 to 41. And in the second place, I believe we're told here that Christ will come on a business-as-usual day. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus used the Old Testament to illustrate his teaching so often, and here's an event that he can easily use from the Old Testament, another dramatic event that brought judgment, that brought interruption in a drastic way to the lives of people. In fact, certainly the premier event like this available from the whole Old Testament. He goes back to that onset of the great flood, which was God's judgment on the people of Noah's day when the Lord saw the extreme sinfulness of the world. Now, we're told that people did know. They had a prediction. You know, when it says here, we read in the text here, you might be upset to read verse 39, that they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. He said, that wasn't very fair. Well, wait a minute. They were told. There certainly was preaching. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He declared what the Lord was about to do. And more than once, I don't think he just stood up one time and said, okay, this is your warning, believe me or not. 
I believe he was continually proclaiming what the Lord had revealed to him was going to happen and calling on his neighbors and others to believe they were accountable to God and they couldn't just go on and ignore God. But they saw no likelihood of anything Noah said was was going to happen. They pursued their ordinary lives and a cataclysm came. And you know what happened. A huge flood covering enormous parts of the earth, if not the whole earth, that literally swept them away in horrible judgment. We don't know how long they had their warning. How long did it take to build an ark? I don't know. (laughs) I know how long it takes to build a house. And houses aren't 450 feet long and 75 feet wide. It took a long time to build an ark. And if Noah and his sons were the only ones building it, it took not probably not just years, maybe decades and throughout that period of time, there was the declaration, you know, what are you, in the world are you doing, Noah? You know, we've made this into a joking thing. Bill Cosby did a great job with it years ago. Many of you may remember. But taking the joke out of it, this was a true event. And Noah was saying, God is going to bring judgment, and he's offered me a way to escape. Will you believe him and escape? Everybody thought, that can't happen. How silly. You know, the genre of disaster movies that Hollywood has churned out from its first days, from the very crude early Godzilla movies, you know, where the dragon comes and wipes out the population to War of the Worlds or Earthquake or Volcano or whatever it is, aliens, you know, what's there one called Independence Day where these overpowering aliens come and they're killing out the whole world's population Hollywood loves that, and it loves to picture that the last events of time is going to be some chaos of worldwide anarchy where people are running around like panicked ants and and buildings are falling on them and they're getting wiped out. Well, isn't it interesting that the Bible's picture is quite different than that? Yes, there are these worldwide birth pains going on, wars and earthquakes and persecutions. Those things are happening. They're they're happening right now in our time. We know that. But in the event of those, we don't stop our lives and say, oh my goodness, there's a tsunami in Indonesia. I better stop living. Or there's a war in Iraq. or, Or there's an earthquake in California. Life goes on, doesn't it? And the Scripture says here, life in Noah's time went on. There were weddings and they bought groceries, and they added on to their house, and they enjoyed time with their families, and they were doing all these normal things right up to the time when the judgment came. Now, it's not as if any of these things they were doing were bad things. There's nothing wrong with having a wedding. There's nothing wrong with reporting to your job or going to school or or doing the normal things you do. The, The whole point of it was, though, that they were overcome with and overtaken with preoccupation with daily life that they thought that was it. That was all. Just getting up every day and and taking care of business and going to bed again was it. And they never looked past it. They were so immersed in the every day that they never considered the last day. That was the problem. And Christ is implying to us here that we are permitted by faith to look beneath, sort of see behind the scenes of the everyday, normal 
events and realize that it is later on the world calendar than most people imagine. And as we look beneath, what we see is Jesus Christ, who's come once to his cross and his resurrection and his ascension, who's ruling now, who's coming again. And therefore, we're able to do what Hebrews 11 says we ought to do, which is to walk in the way the patriarchs did as, quote, as seeing him who is invisible. We see him who is the epicenter of history, Jesus Christ. Now, you notice the, the imagery here given in this text of what's called taking and leaving in verses 40 and 41. The emphasis is on people who are friends, maybe they're brothers, maybe they're husband and wife, doing things side by side, normal things, putting a roof on the house perhaps, going to a business meeting, shopping for, you know, makings of tonight's dinner. And in the midst of doing those things, Jesus gives this picture of one being taken. We think the implication is clear that the one who is taken is taken for safety and blessedness because this is exactly what was predicted in verse 31. Up above, we looked at it last time, the gathering of God's elect as Christ comes. The first thing that happens is that his elect are taken to him. But then others are left. The word left has sort of a grim sense about it. Left for judgment. Passed over for judgment. The emphasis of Jesus is on ordinary people doing ordinary tasks. They don't look any different one from the other. No one looks intellectually better, morally better, spiritually better. And yet God knows the difference about them. He knows that one belongs to him and one does not. And the emphasis is that there's an absolute difference between them, in fact. And that one who's made the tragic choice to say, God, I don't need you as part of my everyday routine. God, I don't need to listen to your word. I don't need to believe that you're doing anything in this plan of day after day after day and week after week and month after month. It's all just the same and you go to the grave, and that's it? Well, the Lord says, by implication, if that's what you choose to believe, then you'll get what you choose. And When that final time comes, you'll wail. You'll mourn. Remember verse 30 said that up above. And it'll be too late for you to be converted then. So we look here and we see with a real certainty in this second place that Christ is going to come on a business-as-usual day. So we have a hope, we believers. We have hope that we can live out our ordinary days in the light of the great day until there aren't any more ordinary days. And what do we do between now and then? Two words, keep watch. Well, people ask themselves, am I supposed to march around all day long and remind myself every 15 minutes Jesus Christ is coming again? Well, let's be practical. How many of us are likely to do that? And yet, there is a sense in which we ought to be people more and more absorbed and in love with our great Savior more and more aware with what he's doing in our lives as we go to Scripture day by day and and read there and understand what he's doing, as we pray 
with him as our mediator before God, there's a sense in which the person of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the glory of Christ grows in our estimation, permeates our minds in our consciousness so that it's no longer a foreign idea, you know, that, that some alien is coming into history. It's not an alien at all. It's our wonderful Savior coming with glory and majesty, the like of which we've never seen at all, but we've imagined and we've yearned towards it, knowing that we too are going to be completed and given resurrection bodies and look upon his face. But there's a kind of tension about that, you see, because you still have to do the everyday things, and yet you're learning to yearn for that other day. And here's the problem, I think. People don't like tension. They don't like to live in a sense of incompleteness. Any of you watched the TV show Monk? My wife and I have recently become kind of fans of Monk, this fanatical guy. If you haven't seen him, I can't possibly describe him to you. But, but Monk has to have everything perfectly ordered in his world, uh, and, and I was talking to John Light, and I was saying, this sermon series on Matthew is going to have 81 sermons, I think. And John said, oh, Monk wouldn't like that. He said, couldn't you end with 80? Because 81's an odd number. And, and, you know, Monk has to line up the paintings on people's walls and things like that. Well, Monk is a man who can't live under tension. He can't live with something unresolved. And we're like that. We want it to be resolved now. And so one of two things tends to happen as a result. We either become kind of second coming agnostics and we say like the folks told of in 2 Peter 3 where it's recorded that people say, where is this coming of his? Everything's going on just as it has since the beginning of the world. Well, Peter's answer is no, that isn't true in the first place because God has already brought a devastating judgment in the flood. But you see, the tension could lead us to say it's not real. That's one reaction. Or it could also lead us to say, well, I better start studying prophecy. And I better find out where Harold Camping is still preaching so I can hear him tell me when the next predicted date is because I want to know. You see, we're asked to kind of walk on a mountain ridge, and what we want to do is go off one side or the other. We either want to say it's not going to happen or I've got to figure it out. And neither one of those is the right response. We're asked to live in a kind of watchfulness that learns to know Jesus Christ better and better as we walk in the Word of God and as we thank Him and praise Him for what He's doing in our lives. And He grows sweeter and sweeter to us so that we actually do have a good expectancy about that day. The passage I'm looking at here, closing at verse 44, ends with a strange kind of comparison. You wouldn't think Jesus, the Lord of glory, would ever compare himself to a thief. Now, he's not a thief in that he's going to steal anything from you. But it's a thief's unexpected, unannounced approach that, of course, he's talking about. And he uses the image here in just a tiny, we might call it a mini parable, starting at verse 42, about the thief coming. It says, the owner of the house, if he'd known when the thief was coming, you know, every security company knows when they make their big sales. When do you make a sale to somebody of a security system? The day after they've been robbed. 
<laughs> That's when it happens, you know. I've been robbed. I better get a security system. That's probably the time when you need it the least because the likelihood of you being robbed again right away is probably statistically low. But Christ uses this comparison and said, I'm going to come like a thief. Now, think of this. Maybe just paraphrase this a little bit. What if somehow God were to give you a special revelation? I'm not assuming he does this, but let's say he, he would reveal to you, sir, there's going to be a burglar who is going to make a definite attempt to rob your house within the next 20 years. Okay? Your house, the, he's going to do it. I promise you, if God said that, he's going to rob your house in 20 years. So he said, well, great. Better get the security system. Better set it up every night. Punch in the code so all the windows are protected, the doors are protected. And what if you did that for 19 and a half years? And you, you stopped after 19 and a half years and you said, you know, this is ridiculous. We had a security system one time. It was already there in the house we bought, and we just stopped using it. It was such a nuisance. And you said, 19 and a half years, I've been setting this thing up every night. Uh, The thief has never come. I'm going to stop doing this. That's one one way you could react, right? Or you could say, wait a minute. God promised me that a thief is going to burglarize my house within 20 years. And it's been 19 and a half. I have far more reason now for the next six months to set that system and be on the alert and live in an aware way than I had for the first 19 and a half years. And that, I think, is what Scripture is telling us. After 20 centuries of what we call delay, it's not delay from God's standpoint, but we call it delay, in the return of Christ, we have more reason to look for this sure event today than Martin Luther did or John Calvin did or the apostles did. The judge is nearly at the door. I want to close with a little fictional story. I stress it is a fictional, sort of a fictional parable. I read it a long time ago. This old fable tells about Three Apprentice Devils or Demons. It's kind of a C.S. Lewis screw tape type thing, although it doesn't come from him. And these three demons are talking to Satan about how to have new strategies to defeat Christianity. Each of them is, you know, sort of an aspiring demon who wants to make his impression. So the first demon comes to Satan and says, Satan, I know I will go and whisper in the ears of people that there is no God. Well, Satan said, that will absolutely fail because too many people know that God is real. Well, a second demon comes along and he says, I've got an idea. I will whisper in the ears of people that there is no hell. And Satan said, you'll you'll succeed better. More will believe you than your first friend here. But yet many do know deep down that there is a hell of judgment coming. The third demon came and said, I have an idea. I'll go and whisper in the ears of people that there's no hurry. There's no hurry about making up your mind or doing anything. And Satan smiled and said, go forth, my son. You will succeed in ruining millions 
the gospel says there is indeed a hurry. The good news of Jesus Christ is, in one sense, an urgent message. The Scripture says now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. What you do in faith with Jesus Christ on this ordinary April Sunday morning has eternal consequences. And the fact of that will be proved to you without any advance warning on one business-as-usual day. I promise you. Father, we ask that you would make us people aware of that day, not afraid of it, but confident of what it means, actually rejoicing in what it means, even though this world will be undone by it. Father, let us so love the Lord who is coming that we know that that day means safety and blessedness. But let us pray and work and serve because we know that day means separation for some whom we love. And you might yet reach them by our witness, our prayers, our church's broadcast of your good news. So, Father, teach us to live as people of the day. For Jesus' sake, amen.